Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. If you ask Shane Mack what he thinks about the current state of technology, he'll tell you that he believes tech has barely even started. We're only 20 years into the full use of the internet, yet Shane believes we've already become lost in our devices and technology. So what if we told you that the future of tech might actually be creating a world that allows us to disconnect digitally and reconnect socially? Shane is the VP of Converse Social, and he's trying to build that future, which he calls a world after apps. In this episode, we will talk about how Shane thinks technology will evolve to help us to become engaged personally, where the money in this industry is going to flow, what consumers really love and want, and one tip from Shane to the telco and communications companies. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Okay, so Shane, it appears that you're like a professional in podcasts. I would like to uh, welcome uh, Shane Mack. SVP of Marketing and Partnership at Converse Social, previously co-founder and CEO of Assist. I also say that you wrote a book, Stop with the BS, loves music, and have uh, nearly 50,000 followers in his blog. You know, the first time I read it, I was asking myself, with 50,000 followers and you like music, why high tech? Why technology? You know, go and sing a song. Why do you need us? <laughs> you know, there was a moment in time about 2000 six when I think my mother was like, are you going to move to Nashville? Or are you going to move to somewhere else? Uh, and my brother actually is about 10 years older than me. And he lived in Seattle. And he was like, you know, I lived in a small town in Peoria, Illinois. We lived on a little 10 acre house yeah. in the middle of nowhere. And um, I kind of made the decision to just move to Seattle and see what would happen. And at about that same time, I, I really found Twitter and Facebook in like 06, 07. And there were all these little communities of people that I'd never met before in my life that were just inspired. They were all building cool stuff. And I started learning how to kind of do a little bit of coding and trying new widgets. And I just fell in love with being able to meet anyone in the world and using these technologies to go kind of build anything you thought of. And it was just this addictive time for me where it kind of just drug me into building and meeting people through the internet. And that's literally how I got my first job in tech. And I didn't know what a startup was. I didn't go to college for startups. And it was more just something that was really, really passionate about. And it just fed my curiosity to keep learning more about it. And then 15 years later, I'm like, shit, I never moved to Nashville. <laughs> okay. And you're passionate about technology or the usage of technology or also, you know, you're still practicing coding and stuff like this. Was it like... Uh... I haven't coded in 10 years. I would probably break all code if I coded today. Okay, good. I, I'm really obsessed with the way that technology connects all of us. That's always been my passion. And that goes into even doing bots and robots in the future. It's still connecting people to services, businesses, or each other. And I've always just been fascinated by that. 
especially in a language and communication way of how it's changed. When I saw Twitter, I saw the ability to text message anybody in the world. I remember every friend of mine in 2007 saying how stupid it was and how dumb I was to even think about this like short form, you're just taking a yeah. today thing. Like that yeah. was what it was at the time. Uh, and I just, I always saw it differently of a way to connect more authentically, more personally, and more efficiently. It's a lot faster. And so you're seeing it play out now. And now every 15 years later, 13 years later, now we're starting to talk to bots. And now we're starting to talk to computers and we're talking to Alexa and Alexa's talking to me and you have Siri in your head. And so all these things are happening now, which I think is just another interesting area that I'm obsessed with of how we're going to talk to technology. Ah, this is quite interesting to see the journey and also to witness how things progressed since the early days. You're not that old, but you're old enough to, uh, to observe some, you know, looking behind and seeing how things uh, was and how they are today. For sure, Twitter and the, and the other uh, names that you've mentioned, all of them, you know, progressed a lot and, and we're in a completely different uh, environment. Do you see tech as continuing to evolve and being part of the, uh, let's say, next 15 years? Or you, th- you think we came to a, a point in which tech serves its role and, and now we're moving into exploiting it? I don't think tech has even started yet. Tech is like 20 years old. The internet we know it today is yep. like 20 years old. 20. Like, that's crazy. And every stat is actually not as big as we think. Everyone's on tech, but e-commerce is only 10%. Or the amount of people, you know, businesses that are online and have a website is like not even close to that. 60% of people still make phone calls. So as we say, like, has tech happened? I don't think tech's happened at all. I think it's been a great infrastructure and they're just phases. The first tech was like search, the ability to find anything in the world and organize that. That was the Google era. Then it was the social era that got us all on there. And it really brought identity to the internet. The next era, I really believe, is about getting things done. The internet now can be predictive. It can anticipate what I want and it can start doing things for me. That era, I think, is actually the biggest era that no one's even understanding or thinking about what's coming. The other era required us to do work. People are like, why'd you spend so much time on the social internet? Dude, I've sent 50,000 tweets in 10 years. That's a lot of time if you add up every single, and that took so long to build this connection. The next is not. The next era is about removing friction. Automation will start getting things done for me. And all of the opportunities actually have to be rebuilt in a language era, different than a website era, which we're coming out of. And I don't think we've even, I don't even think we've even started yet. Like we're just getting started and all the exciting stuff is like just about to happen. Good. And, and do you see like kind of uh, in your dreams or, or in your uh, vision, do you see something like a minority report evolving out of this uh you know, artificial intelligence capabilities and the internet, knowing everything that uh, needs to be known and uh, predicting what, what you're going to do next and stuff like this? You know, you can look at it. There's always two ways to look at it, right? One is the scary way, yeah. like Minority Report and everyone's monitoring you. I always tend to be on the like fundamentally optimistic side. And I do believe there's good intent. You know, I was working with the people early on in the social internet, all of the teams and executives, they were investors and assists, et cetera. No one had malicious intent. No one actually believed also that it would cause presidencies at the time. Like, you know what I mean? So a lot of things happened that were much bigger than I think anyone's grasping. And there's a lot of work that um, everyone needs to do to really get back on track with things that I think weren't really thought about early on with all of the social platforms. That said, the next wave of assistance, this is the way that I think is what changes consumers' lives. 
we're coming out of a search era. Search was about finding anything in the world to get things done. And when that happened, every business in the world had to change how they did search or their website so they showed up in search, right? Now we're moving into an assistant era. And this era is totally different. And there are a lot of implications that could go wrong. And the assistant era is about getting things done. And this is why you see Siri and Alexa and Google Assistant and these voice assistants really pouring all their money into this. Because what's happened is over the last 10 years, all the APIs have been built to expose them to mobile apps. So what I think happens is actually mobile apps completely go away. But what they did is they set the infrastructure to force every person in the world to build APIs to expose all their systems. So now you've exposed all the systems in the world and Alexa, Google Assistant, Siri, or the voice assistant we haven't thought of yet can now talk to all those systems. And what's happening in the world is you have 4,000 systems over here on the left, 4,000 systems over here on the right. One of those systems, by the way, is a human. So if you want to book a haircut, there's haircut software, there's calendar, there's a phone, and there's yeah. talking to a person. The consumer is saying, I want to book a haircut. You know, they're talking to the phone. They call them. They go to the website. They fill out a form, whatever. But now they're going to say, Google Assistant, I want a haircut. And Google Assistant's going to call or fill out a form or do whatever it does to know how to talk to those systems. And now language becomes the thing in the middle that ties together all these systems in the world that don't talk to each other. And when you do this, now we're able to move up to consumer intent. And what's going to happen in the future is every single time I talk to Google Assistant, this is why you see so much money going into the air handling and empathy writing and making them so that even when they don't know the answer, you don't mind talking to it. You're like, oh, it's kind of funny. But what they're doing is every time it doesn't work, they know everything you want. That is game changing for everyone. So now Amazon and Google and Apple, they're sitting there saying, what does Shane want? that we don't do and how do we do that? And that infinite feedback loop is the loop that will drive anticipation and prediction. And really when it happens and it's like your haircut's booked, we found you the best insurance, blah, 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 blah. What's gonna happen is if I have an assistant that can reach out to 10,000 insurance providers at the exact same time, some of them are on a form, some of them are an email, some of them are on the phone, my bot is going and talking to all of these systems or people. It knows how to negotiate what the other price coming back on this one is. State Farm is a little cheaper. This one's actually more expensive. Hey, State Farm, give me a better rate. And I'm sitting over here just, I trust my assistant. And the trust game is the game. And that's why you see so much going into that is because whoever I trust in the future is who I talk to. And who I talk to is who can get me everything I want. And then we get into bionic computing, which is more like, your, you know, when I think it, it happens. And that's another story. This is fascinating. And we'll come back to it in a minute because I have two observations. One is there is indeed a, a nice demo by Google about introducing a haircut. The guy is calling and then the, uh, the bot is chatting with, uh, with the lady and, and eventually has, a, you know, uh, an appointment to take a haircut. And I read in your, um, somewhere in your background that in a previous role of yours, you sold to T-Mobile and, and you wear the T-Mobile hat for 24 hours. And uh, then you bought a Rolex because you wanted to do some business with, what about the, the personal interaction? Do you see that those are, are completely disappearing in your world of APIs? Because, you know, if, if bots are handling everything and APIs are there and the, everything is being handled by your imaginary uh, assistant, why do you need the... The human factor, or are we like uh, redundant? I think it's exactly the opposite. What's happening is technology is disappearing. What we don't realize right now is we've already disappeared. 
because all we're doing is staring at our devices all day, every day. We're not interacting. And you've watched us just spread apart and people at dinner tables, eight people all on their devices, not interacting. We've already disappeared. What's happening now is technology is going to be built to get us off technology. And that's what's happening. That was our mission at Assist. We built software to get people off using software because I was watching all this happen. Okay. And I was like, this is bad. It's up to us, self-control, to actually be aware of it and take it into our own hands. That's why you see meditation and you know, anxiety. All these things are on the rise, right? Because we're trying to get control of our lives with this thing that's always coming at us. But I would argue that we've already disappeared from technology and we're already just staring into these devices in the, the abyss. If I have something that can go do things for me, that takes 90% of the time away from what I used to have to do to like go uh-huh. dig in and do it by just having a voice in my head and a Siri, hey Siri, can you go get us a reservation for tomorrow? And then I'm back with whoever I'm with and I'm not staring into my device. I would argue it actually brings us back. Do you believe that uh, like traditional or the way we interacted in the tech industry with potential customers is again also cyclic, doing a, a full cycle in the sense that you will see more and more face-to-face meetings or, or these days are gone? I think about this in two ways. Okay. How do you build authentic relationships? I don't think that happens face-to-face, in person, asynchronous, whatever. It happens in a conversation. I would argue that I've done business the last 10 years and been able to sell, you know, C-levels, whether it's the CDO of MGM, T-Mobile, all because I do business in iMessage. And I don't use email ever. Like I use email, but like if you ask people I work with, they're like, he's really bad at email. Like my assistant used to manage my email and I just not, it's not my medium. Like sending over this one way communication is not the way that I think the world works. So I look at like zoom, like this is a relationship that we're starting to build. Like, you know, we kind of are talking, but it's synchronous. We're here, we're present and presence and listening and curiosity and video and being able to connect and see your face. Like, I mean, if, if you're in Israel right now, like that's so cool that you're over there, I'm here. And next time we meet, we'll be like, man, it was a great time meeting you. That is, that is what I love about technology. And I think the more you treat it just like how you interact offline, offline is going to be amazing. But the relationships can now be formed, grown, and built through mediums online And that's kind of what I've done the last 10 years that everyone would be like, I don't understand how you sell. You're just over here like tweeting or you're on texting or whatever. But the conversation is the relationship. And I've always believed that. And so in this space, it's the same thing. I'm like, whether we're offline or online or whatever, what's happening in business is the way that people are working with businesses is turning into the way that I've done business the last 10 years, which is it's a relationship that gets better over time, which is just a conversation. And now it's going to be augmented by automation or not based on if it can get it done for me completely. And for me, I actually feel like it's actually making it more human. The social internet didn't turn out to be human. Social internet actually ruined a lot of things. And I think that's the interesting point is social media didn't play out how everyone thought. Everyone's on a pedestal. Everyone's public. Everyone is putting themselves out there in their best light. No one's vulnerable. No one's having personal connections. But there are, people are having personal connections. But like, it had a lot of implications that were negative, but it had a ton of implications that were positive. This space is more where I'm interested, which is private one-to-one interaction. Whether it's video, whether it's messaging, whether it's me talking to my Siri because I trust it. And, and I think that space is actually going to bring a lot of humanity, purpose, and connection back to technology. But maybe I'm missing something, maybe. Um, so try to explain to me. I think that 
I understand the philosophy behind what you're saying, but wouldn't it be kind of uh, a different behavior from a C-level person that is like in his 60s or 50s and a teenage or uh, a Gen Z that just started working 24 years of age and completely agree to the way that you've just described because this is his life. Wouldn't the behavior be different and striking a meeting with a Gen Z person will be much easier for sure, but the C-level still expect the email? No. I think this is why the whole everyone's flawed. So I'll give you a story. Three weeks ago, I'm sitting in my apartment and I get a text message and he, and he was like, hey man, great story. Love this. And I was like, I was like, who is this? And he was like, Chris. And I was like, Chris who? And he's like, McCann, the CEO of 1-800-Flowers. And I had never messaged him, but he knew that I always was the messaging guy. I was always messaging his executives. Arnie used to be at IBM for 18 years. My whole relationship, and this was our first customer, our whole relationship with Arnie, the CIO, Amit, the CMO, and then the CEO is how they text all their family and friends. Everyone's texting. My grandma was always like, just please text me, honey. It's easier. Texting actually is already completely ubiquitous. Everyone at every age groups already uses it. Okay. When you don't think about doing business, you build relationships. That's the secret. So therefore, what happened was Arnie and I had a great relationship. We talked about life, his kids, his kid went off to war. And like, I got to watch him do that. Amit was awesome. He would do it. I knew, I knew like the relationship between Arnie and Amit at the company. Chris McCann would always invite me to private dinners. And it was just relationships. And they were actually the ones messaging me. And Chris McCann, you know, I don't want to call him out because he'll probably listen to this. He's, he's over 40, you know, he's probably <laughs> okay. over 50, but like, he's amazing. <laughs> he's amazing. And then we had this long conversation about life. And then he was like, Hey, what do you think of this vendor? We kind of talked and I was like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, I definitely like stay away from that. Oh, thanks man. And all of a sudden, two hours later, we're still talking. No, the world's already changed. Everyone's just trying to do the old way. And then everyone who isn't and understands it, they're like, no one can figure out how they're doing it. And they're like, well, how are they working? They're not tracked it. You know why? Because systems don't track it. So then the boss goes, well, how do we track it in Salesforce? And man, we need to really understand how many messages are flowing. And, and then I'm like, well, you have a 4% open rate and I have a 99% open rate and I'm having a conversation and you're not. So like, I don't know, figure out your tracking. And texting in your eyes is, is everything or tweeting is texting or is there a specific channel or everywhere? No. What have you? Doesn't matter. I think whatever channel is the most personal channel that no one's exploited yet. So right now I'd probably be TikToking people. Like I'm going to TikTok, find people. I'm doing business over Snapchat, Twitter DMs, iMessage, whatever. Because it's just where you're being your most authentic self. And that's always been the case. That's why 10 years ago on Twitter, it was so powerful. And, you know, I think that's just how I've always kind of thought about it. Okay. And it's hard for people to grasp for what it's worth. And then people go, I, I don't know how it works over there, but it kind of, I guess it works. Yeah, kind of... Uh something you get used to and then you don't understand how you live without it. Let's speak a bit about your uh, current role and vision to the industry. So take us through, let's say, a one-on-one course of uh, what's the essence behind the vision that your company brings and why is it so fundamentally changing the, the way we grasp the market. And take us, you know, through the phases and explain to us the ecosystem and then the big change that you're bringing. Yeah, I think to start... Digital for the last 20 years ended up with a website and a live chat on your website that kind of became a billboard between you and your customers. It didn't actually build relationships with your customers. It actually pushed them further away. And 
what I think is happening now is the whole world was built in silos. And what I mean by that is big company X, say Verizon, they have a do not reply email. They have a support at email. They have a website with a phone number that goes to a different department and they have a live chat, which is also sold by a different team. And they have all these different channels and they're forcing the consumer to choose to which channel to contact them. And they're not looking at that consumer as one relationship. They're looking at that consumer as a session that they'll solve. And then once it's solved, they're done. And I think what's fundamentally changing is one, consumers love messaging, like love. Everyone uses the messaging app on their phone 90% of the time. So they don't want to download another app. They don't really, I would argue they don't really want to go to your website. They just haven't had a way to communicate with you through messaging. And then two is messaging is persistent and lasts forever. When you texted me and you said, you know, Moshi, it's who I know from uh, Amdocs, I love him. Our relationship is built, grown, and done business solely through iMessage. And so the future looks more like that. How you communicate with your brands is how you communicate with your friends. But with brands, the consumer just wants the right thing, the right answer, or to get something done. And so if you can add automation to certain use cases and integrate the systems to get that done, it's this hybrid of bots and humans together that creates a messaging experience that is the single most channel that I want to use as a consumer. And now it allows me to do everything the website could do and more, everything the phone could do and more. And also I can ask things that I never actually thought I asked because I have a relationship now. And so what's happening is I don't think you even go into websites in the future. For 95% of brands in the world, a website is irrelevant, completely irrelevant. For businesses that were built for websites like the Yelps, the Foursquares, the open tables, totally get it. But open table is even irrelevant. Open table is an API because systems couldn't talk exactly. to each other and they had to install their own system. That's gone because you can basically use language and an assistant and a bot to talk to that. And that's why reservations is one of our biggest use cases. So all that middleware software, I think I would argue is in a really weird spot in this next new world. Then the big vision is this. I don't think Hyatt is in the hotel business in the future because hotel rooms are a commodity. And if you hear every day that Amazon's making everything a commodity, then you would ask yourself, what's not a commodity? And what's not a commodity is the relationship you have with your customer. And this is where infinite feedback loops and learning models are the secret. Because if I went to Hyatt and said, hey, I'm just curious because I'm messaging them and they have a relationship that has all the history and it's all machine readable text and they know everything about Shane. And I said, do you have a daycare nearby? And they'd say, you know what? I don't know, but I'll find out. And my co-founder actually founded Geek Squad of uh, Assist. And he always said on the back of every Geek Squad uniform was, I don't know. If I don't know, I'll find out. Because that's the infinite feedback loop. And that's what the bots and the humans will do. And then that gets logged as an error. And it says, we need to figure out this answer. And then what happens is we respond back in an hour and say, hey, we actually went and searched and we found the best three daycares nearby. And I'm like, man, I really love Hyatt. That, that, was, that was great. I wonder if I could ask him to make a reservation for me can you make a dinner reservation for me? Boom, plug in reservation bot. Sure. And then I say, can you teach me how to play mandolin? And they're like, what? We don't, we don't do mandolin. We don't play mandolin. It logs as an error. And then maybe a thousand people decided that when they're in hotels, they wanted to learn how to play music. And what a cool offering hotels can offer to give people music lessons while they're on music trips or business trips and they're not doing anything. And then a year later, they're like, you know what? We're going to launch this. They have a new YouTube channel called Learn Anything at Hyatt. 
And it's a beautiful way to learn with teachers online, right in your hotel room. And it responds back to me and says, hey, Shane, remember when you asked about mandolin lessons? We just launched music teachers in all Hyatt's in the world. Mind blown, relationship grown. And now what is Hyatt as a company? It's not selling hotel rooms, it's selling an experience and it's selling making my life better. That's where this goes. Messaging is the channel that you can hear everything I want. Messaging also is conversational, which will also be Hyatt's Google Assistant, right? It's just my ability to talk to Hyatt in a personal way and get back either a person, the answer, or the right bot to be able to go do things for me. That, I think, is a much cooler vision for the future and also where I think brands really have to think at a whole different level because it's not about selling you more It's you'll buy more if I make your life better. And that comes from listening and doing these feedback loops in the combination of a channel where I can tell you what I really want. So very interesting. And I, while, while you were describing it, I was thinking, isn't it exactly what Siri is trying to do? And if so, they are so dominant, do you think that there is a room for someone else? Uh, maybe, maybe Google will come with something, but is there a place for someone who is not a, a web scale giant with already 1 million apps? Oh, you don't call them apps, but uh, you know. <laughs> but yeah. a thousand percent, because it's just like the internet. There's a lot of businesses built, even though Google owns the starting of everything, right? Okay. And so when you can think creatively and how to make people's lives better, there's so many opportunities to be unique and different. And the way you go to different websites, I still go to Amazon, I still go to Google. There's a war over that, but I go to two different websites. I think you're going to go to different bots. So what's going to happen in the future is I trust Alexa to do shopping for me. I trust Siri for everything on my device that's with my contacts, with my location, because I really trust Siri and the privacy and that. You know what I trust Cortana with, Microsoft's bot? Anything productivity. Cortana, actually, I love talking to, hey, Cortana, really, can you tell my coworkers that I'm off today? Do not disturb mode. And please um, schedule an out of office on my email. Boom. Then I trust Google Assistant for anything informational, sports scores, anything on the web. I want to find information, book reservations, because I know they already have open table, et cetera. So then Hyatt's opportunity is what's unique to Hyatt that those people won't do, just like what's unique to Hyatt today that Google doesn't do. I don't know. There's so many things they can do with their 600 properties. How do you make people's lives better on property? How do you make the experience something like the guitar example that is digital, that is teaching, that is healthcare, that is wellness, all these things that are emerging in the world. How does your digital layer be unique to you? And then I ask Hyatt because I trust them. You know why? They have the best wellness people in the world. The five best athletes in the world are the reps for Hyatt now and they've modeled their coaching program into a bot. Did you know Hyatt teaches classes that freaking the founder of CrossFit and LeBron and Tom Brady are actually the ones coaching me? It's insane. No one's thinking like that. Everyone's scared of the other ones. And, it, and I'm like, it's the same thing happened on the internet. There's a billion websites. There's a lot of businesses on different ones. And you're going to choose who you trust. And I think that's the key word. Who you trust for what use case is who you're going to talk to. Brands have to stop thinking of themselves as a commodity product and start thinking themselves as a relationship. And then I think you get creative. Very interesting. And this kind of uh, innovative thinking probably is not something that you are preaching for the last 40 minutes with myself. Probably it's a bit longer. And uh, my question to you is, when you started to push to that direction, was the world there? Or you were like uh, speaking to people and, and they completely didn't understand what you were talking about, didn't understand 
what is it all about and it took you some time to either break their heads or them to understand that something is changing I feel like I'm on a never-ending game for the next 10 years yeah uh, I don't think the world's there yet to be honest with you Apple business chat opened up a year and a half ago Google assistant st- still has very few brands on it that are actually people using it um, but the infrastructures there for the last seven years building assist we've worked with all these big platforms on the infrastructure and that's how long it takes but when I talked to the CEO of Hyatt actually I sat down with him in New- in Chicago and how did you reach him you sent him a check what was the initial contact so there's a leadership coach that I really love who just wrote a book that came out called leadership is language it's phenomenal it's this book right here the hidden power of what you say and what you don't And David Marquet was the former Navy officer, head of the nuclear submarine, the Santa Fe. And I think he it works with or something with Mark, who's the CEO of Hyatt. And Hyatt was already a customer of ours. And so we were working with Hyatt and I was having a dinner in Chicago and I think I invited David and then the dots connected and he said, oh, I can enter you to, to Mark. I really, you know, Mark and I have a great relationship. He emailed us. It was through email. But the way we communicated was like three word responses. You know, it was like, I'm in town on Friday. Cool. Stop by for lunch. Great. Done. <laughs> and then, you know, we, we, I stopped by the Hyatt office and it was great. And he talked a lot about their vision of wellness as a, as a, you know, the future, but also to your point, he gets it right. And so I talked to the chief digital offer, officer of MGM, Kelly Smith, love this guy. He gets it came from building the mobile product at Starbucks. They're trying to remove technology from the experience, but make it a completely automated, frictionless experience. Now they have the number one mobile app in the world. So when, it, when I talk to the C-levels at these really good brands, they get it. They really get it. The problem is it's fundamentally different than all the infrastructure built for the last 20 years for the web. That's what's hard. And biggest secret that I say is start over. Like you got to just start over from a customer experience standpoint. And it starts with redesigning your organization. Because what happens now is you have three silos between marketing, sales, and care. They all have their own incentives and motives, and they all have their own budgets, and their business models aren't aligned. And so the people that are succeeding at this is they get, they get the big picture, they get the relationship that's forever, and they get an always improving experience. But they have to redesign the care to live under marketing. Marketing is turning into customer experience, and then care is turning into a retention metric, not a cost metric. That's the way to redesign the organization if you want to align a single customer experience that is best for the consumer. There are brands doing this, and I think a lot of our big brands are talking about it. A few have implemented it, and you have to start with your organizational design. And that's a big ask, right? That's a huge hurdle. But if you don't, you're going to have one-off experiences. I'm going to be right back to the do not reply email, support email problem, and not having a, you know, a really great singular experience. And... Within this experience, what do you see the role of, you've mentioned bots, but what about uh, AI? And is it part of the experience or is it part of, of yet another API that you will uh, send to someone and get the analysis about a specific chat or a specific uh, dialogue? Uh, the answer is both. Uh, and the reality is when you can watch a conversation You're basically watching intent the entire time, right? So AI is some buzzword that's kind of like saying the internet. But AI in this context is language understanding and predictiveness tied to your intent. Yeah. right? What's happening is now that you have the machine readable text from the consumer talking to the brand forever, you can start to really build models that one, you start with 
do I understand what they're saying? And then when I don't, do I have great air handling to be able to trap that so that I know how to go train next? And that's the feedback loop right now. If I don't understand it, we goes in a log, a human has to train it. We train the, the NLU. Now when someone asks for anything in that intent next, it's all programmed to build and do that experience. That's a huge training lift that like none of these brands have ever had to do either. Like that whole you know, workflow, people aren't doing that today. They're like launching a mobile app and then staring at a metrics dashboard and being like, oh, we got a little fall off on screen three. I wonder why they're falling off. That's all gone, right? And so take that and say, how else is AI going to be applied? It's going to be applied for everything. So there's going to be another API, which we actually have used in a few prototypes with PSY.ml, which is a company who was an investor in Assist. And he was the founder and chief scientist of eHarmony, Galen Buckwalter. And he created the algorithms of emotion on how to match love. Well, what he's been doing now is mapping language and feelings and psychometric graphs for the last 20 years. So we plug in that API. That's another analysis we can do on the intent to say, how are you feeling? And now based on if you're fear, angry, sad, or happy, joyful, et cetera, the bot or the human both can have that knowledge to respond yeah. in a different way. If you're really angry, I don't want to respond from the bot and be like, hey, have a great day. Like you want to be like, you know, I'm really sorry. And so that's another API. And there's so many APIs. And so when people say like, hey, I do AI, I'm like, you're probably full of shit to be completely honest when you're that general. But when you get specific about it, I think there's thousands of APIs and AI systems and language understanding and different ways to analyze conversations and analyze people. You see it all over right now, right? Like Grammarly is doing it on top of your language. Crystal is doing it to know how the person you're about to talk to likes to be talked to based on how they talk. You're seeing it with like Otter and Gong and all these new tools are popping up. But what they're able to do is analyze, you know, talking and conversations. And I think we haven't even seen like a scratch of the surface of all the ways we're going to be able to help do prediction and analysis on the language and conversation that we're having. But, but we're doing it today, and I think we're just scratching the surface. Okay, so this uh, ignites two different questions. I'll start with the, uh, the obvious one. You said there are so many APIs and there are endless opportunities. So bringing up a startup today as an entrepreneur would be something relatively easy. There are endless opportunities. You have all the APIs there. What's the barrier of entry for someone to, uh, to ignite a new, uh, a new startup and, and tomorrow offer, quote unquote, the same thing as someone else? <laughs> I mean, if the question is how to start a startup, then I have a lot of thoughts of what not to do. This is my second question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the way that I look at the world and the thing I've learned the hard way over time is whenever there's a big market emerging, the superpower is actually to think smaller. And where in the stack is something that you are really, really uniquely positioned to build something that everyone else in the stack would not do themselves and would just love to use yours. And so in this stack, there's so many layers. There's the protocols and connectors to all the platforms. That's so much work to keep up to. That was what Smooch nailed, just got acquired by Zendesk. Go a layer down. You have the intent modeling in the router. How do you decide where to send this message? Oh, right behind that, you have a whole integrations platform of API connections to infinite services, right? That's like Zapier. It's all custom right now. How do you do this? So that's another part of the stack. Right under that, you have all the connections to live chat software. How do I talk to live person and chorus and social care sprinkler? All that integration. 
Facebook kind of built handover protocol, but it doesn't work outside of Facebook. And like, so there's all these pieces of the stack that all the people working in the space have a really hard time with that we would gladly love someone else to keep up with all that stuff. Yeah. And so when I look at it, whenever there's big things emerging, the ability to think so specific and focused and tiny is the way that you actually break through in the startup land. And then over time, you got to be strategic of like, well, how do I keep the relationship with the customer? Because whoever touches the customer wins. Then I'm going to move up the stack and this is my way in. But it's always about wedges in that are solving some singular thing that everyone's pain in the space has. And I could, shit, if you want to get on a call with us, I'll give you the 30 things that we do custom because we're a full stack thing, right? But we had to do that to go to the enterprise. And that's why we actually, you know, brought our companies together is because they were the live agents and we were the bots and we were already working together on tons of customers. And I'm like, this makes no sense because we're not all aligned to like our one business model. And so then we did that, you know, acquisition last March and it actually is the way to go to enterprise because you have to have an all-in-one solution. But from a startup perspective, the break-in, I mean, there's so many ideas, I think. And then I think, think about bots that no one's thought of. You know, a bot that allows you to text it and it mails letters for you. We actually built this bot. And this is where Robert Stevens, my, my uh, original co-founder, he's a genius at this kind of stuff. And he's the one that all he was thinking about bots. And every time you use a bot, he's like, why doesn't my dishwasher have a bot? It should always tell me when I need more dish pods, if I need to get it serviced, if I need to get a warranty. And he sees this world where like all of those, the the appliances bot that has all the right connections in the partnership ecosystem, et cetera, that bot probably plugs into Google Assistant. Well, that bot's now a big business. Just like Google's sorting traffic to other things, that bot is now the bot that everyone loves because they say, hey, Google, take care of my appliances. Boom, hands off the appliance bot five that was built somewhere and every appliance in the world is already mapped. Which appliance do you have? Oh, cool. That actually needs it every three months. Every three months, we're going to send you notification. We're also going to follow up with automatically ordering you pods to make sure that you always have dishwasher pods. By the way, do you have any allergies or do you like organic kind of pods? Here's the three we recommend. All of a sudden in that use case, there's so much complexity, right? But it's like, it sounded so small. And I think that that's always the thing is everything that sounds tiny never ends up being, but you need to start tiny. And that's how we started the company. To be honest, we were sitting there and Robert Stevens goes, and he taught me this. And I think it was the, it was the biggest lesson to, I learned the hardware and tech of being a guy who's like messaging is the future of search. And they always say like, I would always say big delusional shit. And he would be like, listen, build me a bot to get me a haircut at great clips. And so our first bot, funny enough that Google launched it three years later, our first bot we ever built was a text message channel, 23232. And we integrated all the Great Clips APIs. There's like 400,000 in the US. And we were scraping their website. So we had no integration. And we were doing a web form filler. And then all I would say is cut. And I would text cut. And it would respond back and say, three Great Clips nearby, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, 18 minutes and waiting. He would text number two. And it would say, good. Here's a link to the Google Maps. He'd go and his name was on the screen at Great Clips. And that was the first thing we ever built and him forcing us to be that constrained. All of a sudden I was like, oh shit. And I still think there's going to be a great, like a a haircut bot. Google might compete with you for sure, but they're not going to end up being able to do, I don't think everything yet. You know, when they can do the phone call stuff for sure. But the appliance one's a good example of like no human needed tons of things to map of complexities and the maintenance and unique things that are specific to that use case. And I don't know, that's how I think about it is thinking smaller to think bigger. 
Let me take you a bit back to something you've mentioned, alluded a bit, and I'd like you to elaborate more. The end of the apps era, or kind of uh, why, why won't yep. we have uh, apps in the future? There'll be very few apps that you use all the time, and there'll be almost no other apps. And I think it's because it's already happened. Okay. I ask people every day, do you like downloading apps? And everyone says no. And then I look at the stats, and the last stat I saw was, I think it's like nine, 50% of people download zero apps a month. So the app game is already done. And it's the friction and the clunkiness to every time you install an app. I have to make an account. I have to go through 11 steps in the app store. Half the people in the world don't even have space on their phones. You know, I'm lucky. I'm like, love the cloud and everything's in iCloud. And I meet people here. I'm actually in Nashville, funny enough, um, to tie the whole story back together. But I meet people here all the time. They're like, man, I just don't do that cloud thing because I need my photos. My phone's full. So I don't do new apps. So I'm like, what's going to change? That's going to be solved by they're going to finally adopt. But I think underneath that is the friction to install apps is just too high. And when the reality is for most apps, it's a single use case that I want to do not like the social apps, which I think you'll always have because you're there for a whole okay. experience. The Instagrams, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the entertainment like Netflix. There's something else behind it, whether it's people yep. or content. But the apps that enable me to go talk to a system like book a haircut are the ones I'm like, this, there's no way you're downloading this in the future. It's an intent game. You're like, whatever my intent is, it can happen. Why would I ever download an app? That sounds crazy. So you believe that the experience will be the interface And through it, you will consume what previously was an app? Language will be the interface. Language, okay. And language will allow you to, I mean, take an example that we built. We did this thing with Aramark at the Philly Stadium. And it was the first ever thing with Apple Business Chat, Aramark, ourselves, of this type of experience, which was the ability to order beer in the stadium at your seat. Okay. There's a QR code on the seat. And you scan the QR code, it goes to Apple Business Chat. There's no password, there's no login, there's no install, there's no data needed because in the stadium, there's never any data anyways. And it says, what do you want? And you say, two Bud Lights and a Yingling. And it says, cool, Apple Pay shows up. In two steps, boom, orders in, delivery person's coming down. On the delivery side, we built actually a bot on an Apple Watch. Shane Mack, seat 141, section three, two Bud Lights and a Yingling. Carrying the stuff around now, doesn't have to collect payment no app to install. Both people are using language and messaging and they removed all the technology from the middle. And what happened was everyone used it and everyone loved it. You know how many people downloaded the app to buy stuff in the stadium before that move? Like one a night. Because the friction to download this app and also the app had so much mm -hmm. other in it. It didn't, wasn't built for my intent. I'd open it up and it'd be like, the Phillies selling me a subscription to the MLB team. And it'd be like, oh, there's another thing here. I wanted to tell you about an announcement we have next week, whatever. And the difference in the space is fundamentally that it starts with intent of the consumer and it's built one-to-one, -one, not one-to-many. Websites and apps were built for everyone to be able to use. Yep. Therefore, you had to make sure it did everything. Now you have a website that has so much shit on it that you spent the last 20 years working on personalization technology to try to remove all the things to give the person that's on the site with the right cookies what they want. This changes everything. That's why it's fundamentally hard. It starts with, what do I want? And then you have to bring the company to me. That's a re-engineering of the entire way to think about the systems that brands are just starting to grasp. Oh, this is why it's different. And that I think is what's happened is brands or people 
you know, it's just what we've learned for 20 years. We've learned to build something, make sure everyone can use it. And then we'll personalize it backwards, but you're never going to get to one-to-one personalization because you're not starting that way. In this space, it starts there. And then when it works, you never want an app ever. Like it's so much friction and you should have seen the stats on this thing and the amount of people that used it. It's the future because there's even the simple shit logins. You know how many people just hate passwords? Another password on another app, like F my life. You know, my mother has like a seven page word doc sheet on her desktop to like remember passwords. You know, I'm like, Hey, one password, try it out. Um, but anyways, I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't see the future being apps at all. Um, I think all the APIs in the world were exposed to power the apps. And now we're sitting here with language sitting a layer above the apps. And this is how we do it. So when I talk to CMOs or the VPs we work with or the directors, I say, whatever APIs power your mobile app, we're going to train language to use those APIs. So there's no work to be done on your side. We're not going to ask you to rebuild APIs. And that integration layer is what we've spent the last like five years building you know, on our bot platform is specifically built to use the APIs that power the mobile app world to now be able to do these use cases in a conversational world. So let me try to piggyback on, on this vision and ask you, so for the telcos of the world, the companies that uh, you've mentioned some by name in the telco and media ecosystem, what are the must do's that they need to uh, transform themselves in order to serve or cater the new emerging world as you just described? The first thing I think about is how do you redesign your organization and your business units to be aligned to a singular goal? And that's the hardest one because that takes a lot of organizational effort and you have to think about what you want. And this is why aligning care, sales, and marketing all to one leader, their job is customer experience. And also I think constraints are super important. You can't think of this as another channel. You have to think of this as the only channel. The innovation comes when you say, what if our business just ran through messaging? Robert used to say this to me all the time. He was the CTO of Best Buy for 10 years and he struggled with this. He, it was so hard to like bring all these together, but he saw the vision, but it was an organizational design problem, not a technology problem. And he always said to me, the company that I think is going to break through here is the new telco company that says, you know what? We're a bot only company, but we're a messaging only company. There's no other way to communicate with us, which is what you're starting to see. You ever heard of Lemonade? Yeah. Like messaging bot only insurance. And then State Farm looks at it and goes, oh, that's cute. We don't want to do bots. We like humans. And actually the secret is people don't like human interaction in a business format that's transactional forever. There's so many studies on this. It's friction. Human interaction is actually friction, but the bots weren't good enough yet, but now it's changing. And so when you have that constraint of just do it in this channel with these technologies, you rethink how you do everything. And so if I were a CEO of T-Mobile, what I would be thinking is, how do I design my team to be aligned to a singular goal? And how do I give them the constraint of, for this channel, act like it's our only channel. Design it from the scratch as if this was the way we did business. Not, this is what we're going to try here with one cute use case because we still like email for that. Oh, they want to call for that. Like people, here's the argument I get all the time. People still want to call us. And I'm like, that's a lie. People want to call you because you're not serving them the right way. No one even calls their mother. Like no one calls anybody anymore. They all text their friends. And you think they want to call your business and they don't text their friend, John? Like, come on, that's just bullshit. It's because they're not providing 
in focusing on it as the best experience. They're thinking of it as, mm, I wonder if I just throw out this new messaging channel, it's cute. And they're not thinking about it as a relationship to last forever. How do I improve it forever? How do I have the technology to have my infinite feedback loops to do training? And so I think there's just two things. You have to align everyone under usually as customer experience mission, CMO driven, because that's where the budgets are at. And then care turns into retention, but they actually report to the CMO. And now everyone's aligned to make this singular experience better, not cut cost, because it's about retention as a marketing metric, not about cut cost because I don't want another session. And then you take that and you say, what if our business only used this channel and we're going to test 10% of our customers and just try to serve them here? And that's where I think you'll have the innovation. Like that is the only way that I've found and seen some, some of our brands do it. And then when I, you know, I listened to Robert talk about his pain being a CTO at Best Buy was exactly this. You have the do not reply team and the support team that don't talk. They have different goals. They have different career opportunities. They're just trying to do their best job and get to the next level in their career. And if you don't align the goal at a bigger vision, nothing works. Clear. Well, this is very interesting. And I, I would say mind opening. I, I have a, Kind of a personal question to you, maybe as, as uh, my last question, unless uh, we'll find another one while you were uh, addressing it. You've mentioned several times that uh, you believe that side projects are where the magic happens. And I was wondering, uh, how do you define the side project and what are the ones that you are uh, currently engaged with that are igniting uh, the magic present? <laughs> I do believe that. I think side projects are where you learn everything. And in the world we live in now where like work and life are kind of fluid. It's kind of like, what is work? What is life? It's, I kind of just think it's life. We're all trying to figure out how to balance it all. Um, but everything I've ever learned is from doing a side project and every relationship that I've built that became my co-founder, someone I recruited, someone that recruited me came from the side projects. Uh, and so side projects to me is anything that feeds your curiosity and your creativity. And that could be doing knitting. Cool teaching classes at a, a university that can be building an app that could be designing a little bot with this software on um, voice flow to build a little Alexa bot that connects to a system. And that could be, I love like systems. I love like Zapier type world when I like my, when you make your lights go off because you just say good night and then it also can turn on your toaster and then your coffee thing. And like all that stuff is cool side projects too. And I think that's where you learn and and then you share them online. And this is the most underutilized thing in the world is when you share side projects, you attract people that are also working on similar things. And that's the goal of the internet. Um, and so all of the ability to just put yourself out there and not be insecure and share things before they're done, et cetera, is things that I've just become, you know, very, very passionate about. For me, you know, I've been doing a side project for 12 years called Ask. And it's a podcast and dinner series and kind of there's a notebook and our mission is if the world's more curious, then everything will be better. And I just interview people just like we're doing right now. And we try to produce interviews on the personal side of the leaders, you know. So, you know, I just interviewed David Marquet, who wrote this book. It just became a number two Wall Street Journal bestseller. And I talked to him about therapy in the military. And actually, if you talk about therapy in the military, they think you have a mental health disorder. So people don't disclose that they've ever been to therapy or they don't go to therapy because there's stigmas. And now you basically, you have a military of people that aren't taking care of their minds or when they have problems not getting help because it's stigmatized and judged upon in the military that you have an issue if you do this. How crazy does that sound when I say it? Yeah. Crazy. And so this conversation 
was mind blowing. And these are the conversations that I'm trying to have because I think vulnerability and curiosity is the secret to the world. The more we put ourselves out there, the more we share what we're insecure about, the more we say we don't know, the more people want to help and the more people start sharing what they don't know. And that's a side project for me that I, I just love the relationships I build for it. It's how I met my co-founder, Robert. Like, how'd you, you know, how'd you end up working with the founder of Geek Squad and CTO Best Buy? Ask dinners, you know, and like those things, I think when you have intention behind your gatherings and your side projects, you end up doing some magical things. Yeah, we have a, an external question from the audience. Do you believe that uh, in today's world, the tech leader needs to teach or train his employees to become entrepreneurs and to train them into a mindset of an entrepreneur? So I don't think that. I don't think everyone in the world wants to be an entrepreneur. But everyone in the world wants to be in control of their decisions. And so I think more about ownership and agency. How do you give people a safe place that they can decide and they can feel confident to make decisions, not be micromanaged and really have control of their work. If they wanted to be an entrepreneur, I would love, and I spend all my time helping people to think entrepreneurially. And then they realize if they think they want to be an entrepreneur or not. Cause here's the secret. I do this thing at Georgetown with a friend of mine, Eric Coaster. And we started this course about four years ago. And the course is actually used to be an entrepreneurship course. You know what happened in entrepreneurship course? No one finished it and became an entrepreneur. Why? Because entrepreneurship courses are kind of bullshit. They don't actually teach you entrepreneurship. They teach you business plans and all these things that don't really matter and these ideas and et cetera. The secret to entrepreneurship is actually the moment when you put the book live. So what we did is we turned the course into, we now publish all the students in the course and they all write a book about something they're passionate about and they distribute it. It goes on Amazon. It gets edited. We have a public publishing house. It's called new degree press. Now we do about 450 books a year published and it's turned into this business. The point is what we realized is the moment you go to launch that book and everything you've just worked on passionately is about to be judged by the world. You're super insecure. Your parents are going to read this. You kind of don't want anyone to know you did this. Hmm. You're very vulnerable. It's this moment of that that is entrepreneurial. That is what people don't talk about. Entrepreneurship is built the three years before anyone heard about your product, when everyone makes fun of you and thinks it's stupid and you're in your parents' basement and no one knows what you're doing. And like, I don't know, he doesn't really have a job. Like he's kind of, he's over there just messing around. And then all of a sudden you raise $10 million and it goes, or you have a profitable business, or you just have a thing that you really love that you met people through. It doesn't matter. And judgment is the poison. But that is what you learn. And so what I try to focus on is how do you create environments and experiences so people can feel what it's like to be entrepreneurial in that moment? And then they can decide, do I have the stomach to really all day try to defend why my thing is cool and I really believe in it and I'm going to attract all the people and recruit people to join me and go after this? And I think that's more of what I'm excited about. How do you get people to feel that emotion that I think is what makes entrepreneurship? And it's that piece of it that no one talks about which is the most important. Right. Well, it was an amazing uh, talk. Um, I think your dog just left the, the sofa. He was looking at me for the last <laughs> uh, five minutes in a, you know, like a, in a sad look. So I was feeling that I am stealing uh, your attention from him. No, 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 that's great. He went out right before this. Thank you very much for your time, Shane. No, thank you very much. I'm, I talked too much, so I might as well record it. <laughs>
listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.